Hello, and welcome to this conversation we're having today with Elliot Gu and Roger Conrad. My name is Nate Conrad, and I'll just be asking the two of them some uh, very interesting questions that I hope you'll enjoy. Um, first of all, uh, we'd also like to announce that Roger and Elliot both have uh, recently launched their own Substacks, and so I want to ask each of them to uh, first just say a little bit about what they hope to do with their uh, Substacks. Uh, first, we have Elliot, who has the Free Market Speculator. Um, Elliot, would you mind just telling us a little bit about what you have going on there? Sure. Well, the Free Market Speculator, I just started it up um, back in January, and I'm trying to post um, around once or twice a week. And I cover all sorts of topics in the financial markets, everything from you know my latest outlook for oil uh, and other commodities to my economic take and what's going on for the market as a whole. Um, so it's um, I'm, I'm really excited about it. Um, I plan to be covering both sort of the big picture macro take, uh, as well as drilling down and talking about individual stocks and sectors that I'm discussing across all of Capitalist Times publications. Uh, and of course, um, I love to have comments from readers uh, and answer questions from readers. And oftentimes that's really useful because it gives me new topics that I want to address in future posts. Great, great. That sounds very exciting. Um, Roger, would you tell the audience a little bit about uh, what you have going on at uh, Dividends? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so like Elliot, um, trying to put up a couple of posts uh, every week. Uh, you will find a range of topics there, uh, uh, you know, from the macro uh, picture to, um, to uh, various uh, strategies that we can follow to to realize more uh, more income, and uh, that's basically what I'll be focusing a lot on is how you can uh, earn dividends and and other income from uh, from your investments and the various ways to do so. We really have an unprecedented number of ways to accomplish that as investors these days. But I think the real problem is that. Um, Wall Street really doesn't want you to to uh, to do that, and you know, of course, everybody you can throw down the word Wall Street, and you know, it's and you know the negative connotation and so forth. Uh, but uh, basically, when I say that, what I mean is large institutions that have really been kind of like hoovering up a lot of assets, and they're companies that a lot of people have come to trust, like Vanguard, for example. Uh, not a lot of people know that they dominate a lot of the uh, stock market right now. What their algorithm, uh, computer algorithm-driven uh, uh, ETFs and so on, uh, what they do really has a huge impact on what happens in the stock market. And I think what a lot of people have done is kind of abdicate their investment decision-making to some of these larger uh, entities. And I think it's a real mistake. And, you know, in fact... Um, you know, this next decade, it could really be tragic for a lot of people in that by just buying the average, buying the, the good and bad and ugly, kind of advocating, you know, their investment decision making to other, uh, you know, to these large, basically marketing firms. You know, we're we long past the days where, you know, your friendly neighborhood broker managed your investments and, you know, cared about, you know, your kids and, and your retirement and so forth. I mean, these are just big mega outfits and they're just basically interested in really kind of uh, accumulating a lot of different assets. So 
uh, and basically shoving them all into the same box. So I, I think that that's, I guess if I have a purpose for the sub stack, it's that just to alert people that you don't have to settle for that. You know, you can do a lot better by just devoting kind of a minimal effort to even uh, picking your own investments, picking your own stocks. And you know, of course my side of the business is uh, income. I've been, Elliot and I have been partners for quite a long time. Uh, and uh, you know, that's been kind of my, my side of it. So that's the kind of investments that you'll be uh, hearing about again with that kind of a focus on just educating people, uh, you know, Pointing you to the how, how you can pick your own stuff, getting you into the in, into the best stuff that I that I know from, I guess, uh, thirty five years doing this now. So, which is kind of mind boggling, but um, in any case, uh, always has been a lot of fun. So, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. Great, yeah, and that sounds like a, a very important uh, you know, topic to be covering in your Substack, and I'm sure a lot of people would get a lot of value out of that. Um, so this next question, which is basically our first question for this conversation, actually kind of uh, springs out from what we were just now discussing. Um, I would like to ask Elliot first, but Roger, would you like to weigh in maybe after? Um, sure. So Elliot, why do you think investing in the stock market is important? And why should maybe new investors or you know current investors not just try to get in on the crypto craze? Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, I think that the important thing to remember is that stocks or equities are really ownership, represent ownership in a business, um, in an underlying business and the cash flows that that business produces. You know, whether it's an oil company, which, of course, is a sector I've been covering for many, many years, uh, or a technology stock. I mean, ultimately, that company, uh, when you buy the stock in that company, you earn or you're, you're, you're buying a, a stake in the free cash flow and profits generated by that underlying business. And over a, the, long, the, the long span of history, right, uh, owning businesses and over the long haul, you can be expected to earn a, a, a decent rate of return from that type of investment. A lot of these more speculative assets that we're seeing emerge in recent years, including cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, uh, you're not really you're, you're not really you're not really buying a, an ownership in a business. Um, you're really buying a speculative asset, uh, and that's much more of a zero sum game. In other words, uh, somebody wins, and somebody loses. Uh, you buy a cryptocurrency and it goes up in price. You know you make money, uh, but it, you know there there are many times. Uh, in the history of cryptocurrency and really any asset class where they also go down in price. Um, so it's much more of a speculative thing. Um, you're not really buying a stake in a stream of future cash flows. Um, you know, and in fact, you know, I look at, I've, I've looked at cryptocurrencies a lot in the last few years and of course studied them since their inception, you know, about 15, uh, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. And I mean, if you look at Bitcoin, you know, one of the things I noticed about it is, first of all, it's a heck of a lot more volatile than either the stock market or other assets, traditional assets like gold, for example, which is something it's often compared to, right? People call it digital gold. And, you know, if I look at it through since its inception, uh, or at least the last 12 years of history, you know, the annualized volatility of Bitcoin is something like 120%. 
um, compared to you know the stock market right around 20% uh, plus or minus and gold more like 15%. Uh, so it moves around a lot. The other thing is, is that it's positively correlated to the broader stock market and it's positively correlated to liquidity in the market as measured by, for example, the size of the Fed's balance sheet. Um, so it's not really a particularly great hedge for anything. Um, it, it's really, the best way to characterize it is Bitcoin is something you buy uh, for, for greed, right? Uh, to speculate on something <laughs> uh, rather than as a, as a hedge or as an asset for a store of wealth like gold might be. And then the stock market is something entirely different. Um, you're really looking to, in the end, now, in the short run, you know, as I think there was an old Warren Buffett quote that in the short run, you know, uh, stocks are about popularity uh, or, or voting, right? And so you can have crazes in individual stocks. I mean, we've certainly seen that plenty over just the last year. Um, some stocks like Tesla over the last couple of years seeing rampant upside. Uh, but over the long haul, you know, stocks are worth the profits uh, and the free cash flow that they produce. And... Uh, when you get away from the day-to-day -day speculation or the week-to-week -week speculation, um, I still think there's value in that over the long haul. Um, buying into companies, businesses that can generate earnings over time, you know, as Roger spends a lot of time uh, paying attention to dividends, can return capital shareholders in the form of dividends or share buybacks or, or paying down debt. Uh, I still think there's value there above and beyond uh, short-term speculation in you know, cryptocurrencies. I mean, if you go back to uh, the tulip mania craze in 16th cent or in 16 in the 1600s in, in Holland, right? People were speculating on the value of a flower bulb, right? Or the value of a flower. And some flowers were worth more than the average person's house in Holland at the time. And I think that's the same thing, kind of thing you're seeing in Bitcoin. We've seen dramatic gains in a lot of these cryptocurrencies, including Bitcoin. Um, over the last couple of years, dramatic rallies there, um, but it's really not based on any fundamental value. Um, and that differs from the stock market where, you know, you buy a company, whether it's Exxon or Apple, right? There's an underlying value there. There's a product they produce, there's profits they produce over time. Uh, so I still think there's, there's long-term value owning stocks rather than other more speculative assets. Thanks. That's a, uh, that's very clear. Uh, the way you described it there. Do you have anything to add to that, Roger? Yeah, I mean, you know, with gold, uh, I think the, the adage is that uh, an ounce of gold could always, throughout history, buy um, a very high-quality man's suit. Um, and that's, you know, kind of, a, I mean, the point there being that, yeah, it's just held its value over time relative to fiat currency that governments issue and so forth. So, you know, uh, crypto is fairly new on the scene. I think it's tried to bill itself, like Elliot said, as, as something of a substitute for gold. But, um, you know, I, I think why buy the substitute when you can buy, you know, what has actually uh, been a proven store of wealth for people for, for many, many years, you know, uh, really thousands and thousands of years. So, and I, I absolutely agree with everything Elliot said on, on stocks. I mean, the thing about buying individual stocks is you're an owner of those companies. And if you think about it in those terms, you know, is the company healthy? Is the company able to grow? 
you know, is the company able to pay a dividend? Um, I, you know, the, a, a dividend and particularly a rising dividend is a really great outward sign of inner grace, if you will, uh, of a company that, that it's healthy on the inside, that it's growing. And you're part of a growing business. Your wealth grows along with that business. I think, you know, one of the problems I have with ETF world is that you're kind of in a it's you're kind of in a derivative, you know, nether world. Of, of, and these stocks are not companies. You know, they're just ciphers and building blocks of this uh, index that somebody's come up with. And some of them are logical, like the S&P 500. And some of them are just completely fabricated out of thin air. You know, somebody just threw a bunch of stocks together. And, you know, if you're a consumer and you're looking at these ETFs and you're looking at something, you want to buy a sustainable ETF, for example, you know, you know, which is a, an admirable uh, objective, but, you know, there were um, a lot of these sustainable funds, I think just recently were found to be very heavily invested in Russian assets. So when those assets got black, have gotten blacklisted and so on, um, you know, and, and basically, uh, untradeable, uninvestable, uh, you know, what's sustainable about that? So when you buy an ETF, you're buying a label that may or may not have inside what you think is inside. And how do you get around that? Well, just simply go out and pick your own stocks, be a owner in that business, you know, um, as, uh, as you are when you, when you buy shares. So, um, yeah, I think investing in the stock market is extremely important. Uh, and particularly for people just starting out saving, I mean, make when when you learn how to make your own decisions, when you have the confidence to pick your own stocks, suddenly the world opens up for you in terms of what you can make, your potential returns. You know, from uh, from the in the do- decade of the aughts, from like the end of 1999 through the end of uh, 2009, the S and P was actually underwater. Uh, by quite a bit. So you bought your S&P 500 ETF, you feel smart, you're just, you know, you're taking away the pain of, in, of having to make your own investment choices. Uh, you know, you lost big that decade. And this could shape up as another decade just like that with inflation. But I'll, I'll just leave it at that. I, I really think if you give up control and, you know, would you give up, con- you know, would you allow uh, somebody else to pick a car for you? Would you allow you uh, somebody else to tell you where to live. I mean, why would you in, in a million, why would you allow somebody to tell you what stocks that you have to buy because you're buying X, XYZ ETF? So, you know, I've kind of expanded the question, why not buy crypto? You know, I'm you know into why not buy, you know, ETFs, uh, you know, pick your own stocks. There's really no substitute. Yeah, that, that uh, makes a lot of sense. It seems like there's kind of a more of an appetite for for flashiness rather than maybe the substance of investing. That's kind of what Elliot was talking about. And, and maybe also for uh, convenience over, uh, over actual results. Uh, it seems like what you were saying there. Um, yeah. That's very, that's very useful. Um, so what would you say are some of the, uh, the strengths of the investment strategy that, that you two uh, uh, tend to prefer? Um, you know, the, uh, these, these uh, corporations that, that have uh, managed exchange traded funds and that are even uh, running much of the crypto universe, they make their own very strong arguments about why uh, theirs is the right strategy. So, you know, please uh, give us a little bit of a a rundown of why your strategy might be 
uh, more preferable and why someone would want to uh, you know, follow your advice more closely? Sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think that the view out there is that you, know, you can just buy an index fund or an index ETF like the SPY that tracks the S&P 500. And you know, over the long haul, you're going to be okay. And you know, the a lot of that is based on. There's two things that that that's based on. Over the very long haul, right? Returns from owning a broad selection of U.S. stocks, for example, have been solid, right? And you make enough money to offset inflation over the long haul. Um, but you know, John Maynard Keynes, who's sort of the father of one of the fathers, shall we say, of modern economics, used to say that you know, in the long run, you know, we're all dead. <laughs> and the fact is, is that, you know, the long run is, it's, it's nice to talk about, right? But as Roger mentioned, if you bought stocks at the end of 1999, you were still losing money a decade later. If you go back to 1964 and you bought stocks in 1964 and you held until the early 80s, you were losing money in inflation-adjusted terms, a lot of money. Um, and there are other periods like that. We can go back to you know, the late 20s uh, through the 1930s, through the Great Depression. Um, there are lots of long periods of time, 10, 15, 20 years, that stocks did not do well. And as a whole, the stock market as a whole did not uh, you know, generate solid gains. Now, that the second thing is a recency bias, right? Where over the last... 12, 13 years, returns from the stock market as, as a whole have been very good, right? If you bought the S&P 500 back in 2009, actually back in March of 2009, which was the very bottom coming out of the, the, the global financial crisis and great recession, and you held up until today, your returns on an annualized basis are spectacular. Um, so there's a view. And so buying an index fund wasn't a bad way to go uh, for much of the last 12, 13 years. Uh, you certainly could have done better uh, in certain sectors as, uh, as, as we have done in the publications we've run, but uh, it hasn't been a bad return. So a lot of people see that recent experience or not so recent experience, just the last you know, 13 years. And they say, well, uh, there's, there's a bias to assuming that the future is going to look a lot like the recent past. But if we look over the expanse of history, um, there are long periods of time where returns from holding a broad basket of stocks is negative or very poor, especially when adjusted for inflation. And if you look at the history of things like index funds, uh, which have been around for a long time, or index ETFs, which have been around for the last you know, 30 years, 20 or 30 years, um, they're most popular after a period of strong, broader stock market gains. Because everybody says, well, nobody can beat the market at those times, right? Because they've just been through a period of 10 or 12 years uh, where you know, it was difficult to beat the market because the market had strong overall gains or sort of a rising tide. Um, and I, I think what you're going to see happen over the next few years is I think that broader stock market returns are not going to be particularly great going forward. Uh, one reason for that is, is broader market valuations. Um, you know, if we look at a ratio like the cyclically, cyclically adjusted uh, price to earnings ratio, uh, which, you know, is put together by Professor Robert Schiller at Yale, right? Uh, he says that, you know, it, it, he basically looks at average earnings for the S&P 500 over the last 10 years. 
we're about as expensive as we've ever been going back to the 19th century in terms of the U.S. market. This is only a brief period from the late 1999 to early 2000 period, the top of the tech bubble, where the broader market in the United States was more expensive. The S&P 500 was more expensive on this basis. And uh, if I look at the 10-year returns starting from a market this expensive, they're negative. They're, they're flat to negative. So you, do you really want to buy an ETF that tracks a broader market and have flat returns over the next 10 years, especially if inflation is going to be, you know, you know, three times what the Fed's target is, you know, like running around 6% right now um, in terms of the one-year break-even inflation rate? I don't think so. That's not a great return. Um, so I think that um, if you look at it over a long period of time, there's value to be had. I'm, I don't have anything against ETFs. In fact, I often recommend ETFs as a way to get broad market exposure quickly, right? Because you're buying the entire market. Um, but I think there's a lot of value in being able to identify sectors and individual companies that can outperform the broader index. And I think that strategy really shines in markets like we're entering right now where returns from the broader market aren't likely to be as supportive. You're not going to have that rising tide so much. Uh, and therefore, there's going to be very clear winners in the stock market and very clear losers. And people who just index are going to have a much harder go of it uh, than those willing to pick their places and uh, pick their times, frankly, in the stock market. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely true. I mean, it's, it's also been true even in the last 10 years that you could by just doing a little bit of timing and just a little bit of discriminating between sectors and individual companies that you, you could really, uh, you know, juice your returns. Whereas if you just kind of bought and hold an ETF, um, you know, you would uh, be subject to all the ups and downs. I mean, but, but I think this definitely becomes more graphic when you're in uh, a period where the market is, declining. I'm, you know, just looking at a, a stock like, I mean, one of the big winners in that law, you know, was pretty much a lost decade, right? The aughts that I, that I just described, uh, you know, Chevron, uh, if you bought shares of Chevron, reinvested them, uh, you would have made pretty close to 10% a year in a decade, you know, when the S&P was actually underwater more than uh, 20% um, over that time. So, uh, again, selection, I think, is, you know, becomes even more important when things aren't um, aren't all going well. I mean, in terms of strengths and weaknesses of a strategy where you look at individual businesses and buy individual stocks, I mean, the, you know, the biggest uh, weakness, I think, is it takes more time uh, to do it well, you know, and you do have to pay attention to what's in your basket. You know, you're talking about, you know, having all your eggs in one basket. I mean, um, you know, you basically what that boils down, you have to look at how these individual companies are doing. I mean, are they weakening from uh, quarter to quarter? Is the, is the management saying something, uh, you know, less than what they said the quarter before every time they, they, they see the analysts, they're like bringing down their expectations. I call that sliding guidance, you know, and it's a very, very, dangerous sign. And if a company is doing that, you definitely want to be, um, you definitely want to be out of it. So it is important to keep up. I think it's important to have good 
uh, information sources. And I say that self-interestedly as well, because that's kind of what we do. We provide that information. But I do think if people can get that information, make their own choices and take the time, then you can make very good decisions. Now, another thing about buying individual stocks is, like I said, sometimes the original premise you come into a stock uh, doesn't hold maybe within six months. And if that's the case, you really have to have the discipline to move on to something else. Um, you know, when you start buying individual stocks, you're going to find you have so many more choices than if you're just looking at, well, what's the best S&P 500 ETF? I mean, they're all pretty much going to do the same thing for you. But these, again, these individual stocks, you have, I don't want to say infinite choices because it's, it's not infinite, but certainly you have the opportunity now if you use a particularly if you use a brokerage like interactive brokers to buy pretty much anything you want any anywhere in the world that hasn't been sanctioned by the US i think again that's kind of a new thing that we could talk about at a later date uh, that um i i think the first time in my lifetime US investors have been told they cannot own certain stocks so one example would be the big chinese telephone companies which are the largest, you know, phone companies in the world uh, pay pretty good dividends. There was a date uh, about a, a year and a half ago, the U.S. government said, well, you know, sorry, Americans, you can't own these anymore. So these things basically went, became uninvestable. And overnight, um, you know, they showed up in people's accounts as zero, um, whereas they had been, uh, you know, stocks that had been trading 35 $36. So, that can be painful, but again, it's something that if you're diligent because they were warning people in advance, and in fact, in our publications, we were able to warn people to, to get out that you know this was happening and you needed to uh, sell even though things weren't in a great position. So you have to pay more attention. And I think that's a turnoff for some people, but again, I think the, the rewards for doing that uh, versus the risks of not doing that now have become extremely compelling. So I, in fact, I don't think that you can, you can just, you know, sit back and, and invest passively. You know, as, as Elliot said, I mean, ETFs can be extremely helpful um, and particularly with trading. And we do, uh, we've done a trading service together for quite some time that uh, that's a primary staple of, of what we use. But I think where the problem comes in is that people just say, well, you know, you own the ETF, so you have this broad diversification. Um, so therefore, you know, I've eliminated my risk and I can just, uh, you know, sit and forget. And um, that's, uh, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure that ever is held. I'm not that sure that's ever been true, but I think certainly in the next 10 years, it, it's even less true than, than ever. And, and, frankly, uh, quite dangerous. So, uh, you know, I think it, you, you, there's no substitute again for making your own decisions. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, what both of you just now said has gotten me thinking that, you know, when, when times are good and everything's sunny and, and there's sunshine and rainbows around, um, ETFs are a pretty great uh, option. Um, but uh, when, when things are a little more turbulent, they uh, they start to show their their uh, their weaknesses, um, so that kind of gets to uh, my final question for you today, which is um, how have you observed uh, the 
Russian invasion of Ukraine um, having you know an effect on global energy markets? And what do you think the uh, effects will continue to be going forward? Would you like to start off, Elliot? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, the direct effect of the Russian invasion of Ukraine is that we are seeing some Russian oil barrels off the market. Um, some countries are just not willing to buy Russian oil. The U.S. is actually not buying. We, we never bought very much, but um, we're not buying any Russian oil. And then other countries have um, struggled to actually import Russian oil because, for example, tanker companies don't want to carry it. Uh, they can't get insurance to move oil around. Um, so there's, there's sort of a, a black mark, if you will, on Russian crude oil uh, that's caused the supply of Russian crude oil to contract globally, even though most countries don't have a direct embargo uh, on Russian oil. Um, so that's tightened up the supply situation in the short run. Um, the problem is, I think a lot of investors are sitting back and saying, well, you know, Russia is the sole reason or the Russia-Ukraine conflict and the sanctions resulting from that are the sole reason that oil prices are up. And that's not true. Um, if I look at, uh, there's a function on our Bloomberg terminal that allows you to look at the number of times a particular word is mentioned in news stories around the world on a given day. And I took a look at that uh, for the word Ukraine, right? And obviously, you know, on any given day, on any average year, there's going to be some mention of the word Ukraine, uh, some sort of background mentions of it. But, um, and they look at, I mean, there are thousands of sources all over the world. Uh, but you look at it, really started to spike in mid to late January of this year, right? That we began to hear talk of potentially Russia actually invading Ukraine. Uh, prior to that, a lot of people didn't take it seriously, even though there was some talk of it as far back as last year, late last year. Uh, but the oil market had already been rising long before you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, and long before that was a, a widely uh, talked about news story. And in fact, oil prices were under 50 bucks a barrel at the end of 2020. And they were already in the mid 80s to almost $90 a barrel as of the time that news stories about Russia, Ukraine really began to spike. And the reason is, you know, leaving aside the, the Russian issue, um, supply was already very tight for oil. Um, Saudi Arabia, a lot of people look at it and they say, well, yeah, they still have 2 million barrels a day of spare capacity, meaning that they're, they have 2 million barrels a day they could produce, but they're not producing. Uh, and that's true. Um, and certainly in the short, and, and in the short run, you know, Saudi Arabia could increase production. Problem with that is that is twofold. Uh, one is that Saudi Arabia is really the only country in the world uh, that has a reliable spare capacity of oil production that uh, they could go out and produce more oil tomorrow um, to help meet uh, a short-term supply deficits. Uh, and that's a, a source of great comfort for the global oil market that you have a country out there that does have additional production capacity they could bring online quickly if need be. Um, they don't like to produce at full capacity. In fact, they've never done it um, because uh, to do so would diminish their own power in the oil market. Uh, one of the great sources of Saudi power within OPEC and the global oil market is that spare capacity that they have. They can flood the market, send the price of oil down if they want to, or vice versa, restrict supply and push up the price of oil. Uh, it gives them control. 
uh, the other thing, which I think um, is, it's an unanswered question, but uh, how, how long can they sustain production at that maximum capacity? Um, they have a lot of older oil fields that have been in production since the, the 40s and 50s, right? Um, so sort of um, 80 years, right? And a lot of those older fields likely could be even damaged if they were produced at full capacity for a prolonged period of time. Um, so I think that um, in the short term, you know, the Russia, Ukraine, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine is obviously a positive for oil prices because it restricts supply. Uh, longer term, I think it's only one of many issues. I um, mean, it's really a, a short term accelerant for oil prices. Um, but long, even if that were to be resolved tomorrow, which is unlikely, right? But even if, um, for example, Russia, Ukraine come to some sort of a peace deal, you know, maybe even uh, President Putin is removed from power and sanctions are lifted on Russia quickly, say by this summer. Um, obviously, I do think oil prices would come down in the short run, uh, but you still have that underlying longer term problem where demand is growing uh, faster than supply uh, can uh, facilitate. And the problem with the oil market is that supply is very sticky, um, by which I mean that demand can change on a dime, right? You have a recession, demand goes down. You have a recovery, demand goes back up. Uh, but um, supply cannot. Um, a lot of these projects that the world relies upon to uh, produce oil, uh, to meet global demand, take five, six, seven years to go from first discovery of a new oil field to actual first significant commercial oil production. Um, and I think that's really the biggest obstacle the oil market faces over the next five to 10 years is that there's been very little investment in new sources of oil supply uh, since 2014. Um, global discoveries of new oil reserves are at the lowest levels in almost a century over the last couple of years. Um, and as existing fields mature and see natural decline, if demand remains high, uh, which it appears to be very high right now. Um, there's just not enough oil out there to meet demand at low prices, right? Um, so the price of oil is going to have to rise enough that it begins to have an impact on demand. Um, so that's what kind of where I see it over the intermediate term. I, I think the, the longer term risk, if you will, to oil prices is probably a, a recession uh, in the US and globally, right? That brings down demand. Um, and I think that's a risk, honestly, for as soon as next year. I'm not seeing signals that that's imminent yet, but um, that's certainly a risk for next year. Uh, but even if that were to be the case, you know, history shows that demand-led declines in oil prices, where you know, de demand declines because there's a recession, uh, tend to be short-lived. And so I do think we're looking at a prolonged period, uh, five or 10 years, of higher commodity prices, sort of a higher for longer commodity price environment, not just oil, but uh, agricultural price commodity prices nearing multi-decade highs. Um, you know, corn, wheat, uh, also seeing that. And a lot of base metals, which I know Roger uh, spends quite a bit of time uh, looking at and covering as well, also seeing tremendous rallies. Um, I think it's going to be a decade, uh, much like the, the uh, period from 1999 to 2009, where commodities are hot again. 
Thanks so much for adding all that extra context to uh, the question. I think that's, uh, that's, that's very helpful. Do you have anything to add, Roger? Yeah, I mean, I would say that, you know, adding to that would be the fact that um, I think energy has become intensely political, uh, not just in this country, but also elsewhere and never more so than now. And obviously, we know some of the reasons why, right? The, the um, in, in a new focus on environmental factors, everybody wants, you know, clean energy and so on. Um, which kind of come butts up against the fact that there are still a lot of people in the world that don't have uh, affordable electricity, at least not to the extent that we're able to use in, in the developed world. You know, in countries like China, that's really their main concern. They want to, you know, bring uh, that intensity, not just, you know, a power hookup where you can, uh, you know, have a light on um, throughout the day. Uh, but enough uh, reliable electricity where, a, you know, a, a place can function in a, as a, a, in a modern context, you know, with uh, con connectivity and, and, and so on. So that's still a huge challenge in much of the world. And um, again, at the same time, people are really becoming much more, uh, I don't want to say absolutist, but I guess I will say absolutist in terms of what the solutions might be uh, in, for getting more energy. So you have some people on, on one side that wanna have everything that's built, any kind of new energy, it's all gotta be wind and solar, right? Regardless of some of the technical problems that you have there, such as the fact that we can't really store, uh, we don't have the, the technology to store solar, for example, in the daylight hours, so it's available in the nighttime hours, at least not to any kind of appreciable extent uh, that can guarantee the light state, you know, and, and guarantee that we can use energy in such an intense way as we do. Um, and, you know, on the other on the other hand, you have people who will say that, you know, wind and solar aren't economic anywhere they are. So you just have really kind of absolute positions laid out. And I think one of the things that's made this energy that's kind of made this energy crisis uh, that or, or high spiking energy prices coming out of the, the Russian invasion in Ukraine and so on and the and the fallout from the sanctions and, and so on. One thing that's really, you know, highlighted is the fact that, you know, just like what Elliot said, there's a lot a lot of things that progress investment in a lot of areas has really been stymied. And we, you know, part of what we've seen in the U.S. shale basin, because that's been a that was a big part of the increased um, global volumes uh, in the previous decade. But companies there are saying, "Hey, you know, we're not going to really go out on a limb and produce a lot more." One, because prices might drop, but maybe two, because the, the U.S. government is not really that very friend, not so friendly to us. So maybe instead of you know taking a risk trying to build something. Uh, you know, bring some new supply on, build a new pipeline. Maybe we're just going to pay off debts that we take that we that we piled up during the the, the tougher times, uh, and then after that happens, we'll buy back stock, we'll uh, and we'll pay bigger dividends. We'll reward our shareholders um, who stuck with us and uh, and and that are that are coming along now and so on, uh, rather than you know put a lot of more money into to new production. So. It, it, it's a it's a complex kind of situation, but I think you know the one thing I would just add 
to what Elliot said is that I think the fact that energy has become so political has made it more difficult for people to sit back and make rational decisions that actually uh, help bring up supply. Um, and we are seeing demand picking up. And I think that uh, restricted investment or whatever you want to call it is going to, is going to uh, make this a, 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 a higher for longer, as Elliot said, in terms of not just in terms of oil, but commodity prices across the board, because say you're going to replace um, internal combustion engine with electric vehicles. There's a lot of minerals that you have to mine to make all those batteries. And a lot of them are in places like Russia, of course. There are in other parts of the world that aren't, uh, you know, where, um, you know, the, the political situation has been unsettled as well. And then the reserves that we have in countries like the United States and Canada, uh, you know, you have a very strong backlash to building mines to, you know, uh, extract them. So um, again, I think it's this kind of absolute absolutism on really, I, I blame every, you know, on both sides, but also governments um, all across the board, people are really locked into their positions. And instead of talking to each other and trying to solve these two big challenges, which one is, you know, um, just having supply so we can, people can live a, uh, you know, first world life, uh, which everybody wants to do. Um, you know, uh, we're going to have a supply problem with a lot of these things. So again, I think, I think the, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine's kind of highlighted it. What actually is going to come about, come about after this? Um, we'll see. Uh, there are certainly, uh, a lot of people that believe we should really step up the investment side um, and maybe we'll uh, get out of our own way and eventually do it. But yeah, politics, I think, is definitely uh, highlighted here and uh, with the supply uh, situation. And, you know, the other side of that is that it's a very lucrative time to look at selected energy companies uh, all up and down the spectrum, you know, really. Uh, Anybody that's able to make successful investments has got a market, whether they're whether we're talking about, uh, you know, oil, gas, uranium, uh, offshore wind, solar, uh, you know, batteries. I mean, all these all these various things where somebody can make an investment, um, you know, and, uh, you know, they have a market there. The, the challenge is being able to make the investment, being able to breach the supply chain problems, being able to uh, navigate regulation, which can turn on a dime, often depending on who wins a particular election. Uh, so, um, but all that does, again, mean that we have to be selective about what we buy. But if we can buy the right energy stocks, the right commodity stocks, I think we're going to do really, really well uh, going forward. Thanks. Yeah, it seems, uh, seems pretty clear that uh, those who are uh, willing uh, and bold enough and uh, wise enough to choose their own stocks, hopefully with some good investment advice like the kind uh, both of you provide, uh, will be favored, especially going forward. Um, thank you both for making the time today for this call, for this conversation. Um, it's been very interesting for me and I'm sure for all of our listeners. Um, if you found this conversation uh, helpful in any way or interesting and you want to hear a little more or read a little more, 
um, coming from Elliot and Roger. Uh, I highly encourage you to check out their Substacks. Elliot's is the free market speculator. You can find it at freemarketspeculator.substack.com. And Roger's is dividends with Roger Conrad. And that can be found at rogerconrad.substack.com. Thanks so much. <laughs>